Greetings and welcome to Retention Chronicles, the podcast with learnings from expert e-commerce brands and partners. I'm Mariah Parsons. And I'm Noah Raheem today. If you're here, you're either on a quest for e-commerce enlightenment or you accidentally clicked the wrong link. Either way, we're thrilled you've stumbled into our corner of the internet. And hey, even if you're not on the e-commerce hype train, stick around. We promise it'll be worth your while. We've got pearls of wisdom for everyone, whether you're running a business or just trying to keep your houseplants alive. Exactly. So before we unleash the brilliance of today's episode, let's give a shout out to our fantastic sponsor, Malomo. They're the wizards behind the curtain, making the post-purchase experience smoother than a jazz solo. Hit that subscribe button like it will increase LTV overnight and check out our other episodes at gomalomo.com. That's G-O-M-A-L-O-M-O.com. Get ready for insights, chuckles, and possibly a profound realization or two. Here's our newest episode of Retention Chronicles. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Retention Chronicles. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm so excited to get to chat to you. Um, it's going to be a great episode. I already know it. Um, I would love if you could start us off with an intro of you and your brand that you have founded. Absolutely. You kind of set the bar high. Like, it's going to be a great episode. I hope it's a great episode. It's manifestation, uh... <laughs> you know? I have to I have to leave it. I haven't had a bad episode yet, and we're like 93 or something in. So oh, that's good. Not, not that's to add good. the pressure, but I know it'll be great. I'll, I'll go with the flow. I, I will meet your standards. Love um, it. Yes. My name is Jenny Nuccio and I'm the founder and CEO of Amani Collective. Uh, a little bit, I guess, background of our story because Amani Collective is now a holding company of multiple brands. So if you go to Amani Collective, you'll see a lot there. Um, and But we started 10 years ago. Well, really, 13, 14 years ago is when I stepped foot into Kenya and kind of started my journey in building Amani Collective. And my I've been in Kenya now for 12 years. Um, and this is where my family is. I love it so much. I do travel a lot, but um, we are in the process. We were talking about dual citizenship. We're in the process. So Hopefully sometime next year, I can say I have dual citizenship and I am also just, yeah, a really proud Kenyan. So I am more Kenyan now than I am American in many, many ways. My family tells me that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so came to Kenya actually really to start. Um, I was really involved within missions and kind of the nonprofit world. I worked within a school and that is really where the origin story of Amani starts and how I met the first, I call them the pioneers of Amani, the first women that were part of our group. And I was building a child sponsorship program for this um, nonprofit. And really I was doing all of these home visits and walking miles with these kids to visit their homes. And what I noticed, um, the kind of the theme of the kids struggling the most were coming from single widowed or disadvantaged women homes. And so I brought that back in that observation back to the organization and was just like, well, what about these women and what are you doing about like them? Because at the end of the day, they can't pay the fees that the kids need to be in the school. And, and that's what kept happening, right? These kids are being sent home um, because they just couldn't pay, pay the the dollar a month or whatever for their for their kid, and the response to me was like, "Well, that's that's just not what we focus on." And I I truly like honored that like that response, and at the same time, I could not shake it. And so 
over those years, I had gone back and forth uh, to Kenya and I eventually moved my whole life here in 2013. And I moved into the village and we started Imani Collective with the first 16 women. Um, and everything that I sold was the beginning of Imani that like from my, like everything, I left a box in my mom's house. My dad is still a little bit, um, not so happy about me selling my truck, but Hey, my truck being a strong Texas girl is what bought the first singer machine. Sewing there machines you go. of our organization. <laughs> yes. And it's so much part of our story. So we started as a training program. We started as a nonprofit. Um, and my whole hope for these women were that we could create opportunity together. It was never Jenny coming in and doing X, Y, and Z. It was us building it together. So everything we you see today in Amani was built um, in a collective um, in a collective manner. Um, and we naturally and organically grew into a global social enterprise, which is really really cool. Um, it's also a very different strategy to go by. I had no strategy in the beginning. It was just like, we're going to teach a skill and then we're going to place these women in some sort of job. Um, I was really naive in the beginning because obviously teaching women from a marginalized uh, situation in the middle of nowhere, once they have a skill, it's really hard to find an, a job at a market because they're in the middle of nowhere. So we were like, oh shoot, we kind of have to create this marketplace too. And so we naturally created that marketplace over time. Uh, and then grew, um, grew into our business. Our, the beginning stages of Amani Collective, we very much looked Kenyan. We had a lot of Katenge fabrics, a lot of bright and not so design friendly aesthetics. <laughs> like we were just <laughs> making what we could make. I call it our very much crafty pity purchase stage of our, <laughs> of our <laughs> beginning and our story. Uh, but then when we went to New York now and our kind of our first show, that's when we really saw, oh my gosh, this is like, we can do all this. We've, we've already been doing this. We just really need to hone into the market, our ICA, where we want to head towards. And so then in 2016, at the end of 2016, we rebranded into Shop Imani Kids. So our largest brand is our kids brand, which most people know us for that. Um, and now we have multiple brands, uh, that we've built throughout the years, but I'm really proud of where we are, um, today. Um, but it started really, really small and as no strategy and no, <laughs> just, just wanted to help and wanted to be, but not just help, wanted to create a sustainable solution. And I think at the end of the day, that's what got us to our business because it was like, we can continue to ask for donations, but that's not sustainable at any moment. If I have to leave Kenya, then these women are still going to be back to square one. So what are we creating? That's going to uh, have a generational ripple that has nothing to do with me being in place that at any moment, I don't need to be the linchpin of that success or that transformation that these women have created the transformation for themselves. And so that's kind of the root of who we are as a money. Yeah. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Although, um, you're kind of saying like, there's no strategy. I know there's like definitely so much that goes into just starting something like that, let alone where it's yeah. going to. Um, so I'm sure maybe you weren't pen to paper writing out like strategy X, Y, Z steps. There's just so much involved in terms of taking something and growing it to be its own marketplace and to be transformed from something that is teaching people and becomes sustainable as like a full, um, a reciprocity or like a full flywheel effect, I guess. Um, and I want to talk about like the transition to having, it was like a social enterprise, global social enterprise. I think that's the phrase correct. you use. Yeah, correct. 
changing it or like becoming a holding company for all these different um, businesses? What was like, cause I know nothing about that process. Right. So if you could detail about like, what, was there anything that you saw like, oh, this is now when we should make the switch. It makes sense now to become a holding mm-hmm. company. Um, what what was what are the details that perhaps someone wouldn't know if they didn't go through that process themselves? Yeah, for sure. So before we were a holding company, we were just a company. So like we were just a brand, right? So I think um the question that I always asked was because I started as a nonprofit, it's like when is the right switch to become a for-profit? Are we ready to actually take on those expenses? And how does that model work? So we are a hybrid model. So we still have nonprofit activities and we still raise money and we still partner with foundations. So shout out to anybody who wants to reach out <laughs> to us on that. <laughs> we love everything that we do on that side. We have a sustainable farming initiative and really cool training, but we needed to, to ensure that like the nonprofit activity stayed as the nonprofit activities. Um, I remember we had, so we originally, again, just nonprofit and then a non-government organization here in Kenya. And the NGO board was like, you can't just keep training people. Eventually the training ends. Like, so then they should move into a business. Right. And that was kind of our big telltale just in like the structure there is like, okay, well we need just legally for our women to move into a business because we can't say it's continuous training because it's not. Um, and, and then we need to be able to bring new people up to train. And then on the business side, we needed to create something that was sustainable that it's like, we're not just creating and making and wasting resources and not creating something that's competitive in the marketplace. So that kind of was like the question there. The biggest change for me as a leader is I literally had to take off my executive director hat and become a CEO because at the end of the day, um, when you have to wear both of those hats, um, which I do, and it, I, I literally have to switch back and forth. But as an executive director, you always then almost can have a um, like you can almost have someone just save you per se, because you can be like, oh, well, we need to bring in another $50,000 to make this work. And that's not creating sustainable solutions because you're not creating strategy that is actually creating profitability. You're just like, oh, we have a gap again. Right. And so I needed to be able to know that someone can't save us here, that we need to actually create a strategy that works. And with that, we needed to create a competitive brand. So that's when we stepped into that. We redesigned and redeveloped at the end of 2016. 2017, we stepped into Amani Kids. Now, if anyone is, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this, um, we love bright and shiny things. And so what happened from 2017 to now is there was like, I would chase after bright and shiny things of like, oh man, we have our artisan group and they can make this, but this product doesn't necessarily fit into this like customer base. And so um, what happened over the years is we grew from textiles to weaving, to screen printing, to leatherwork, to ceramics. Like our workshop holds a lot of different talent, which most people don't know if they just know our kids brand. They're like, oh, they're just an affirmation banner brand, you know, that makes all these different things uh, with the canvas or screen printing. But the reality is we make a lot of other, um, a, a lot of other products too. And so as a, yeah, as an entrepreneur, we're always chasing the bright and shiny things. So I knew in our workshop, we had like all these things that we do from sewing to weaving, to leatherwork, to ceramics, to screen printing. Like we'd really grown from just textiles. And so throughout the years, I was starting other companies actually. So in 2018, I started Suqua Saddle Blankets and it's like completely an equestrian brand where we do like naturally woven saddle blankets. Cause I knew our weaving team could do that. 
Um, and then I also started coaching and I also started the school of ethical impact where I do an online course about how do you build like a social enterprise and create ethical impact. We trademarked ethical impact. Like we, we had all these different things. We, um, started a creative agency called Talanta. Like there's a lot going on in the back end of a money collective and they were all individual entities. And so at that point in the last year was when we were like, wow, that's a lot to take care of. So if you run one business, you know, all the legal like structure that you, you just have, there's a lot of filing and things you have to take care of. And so one of our biggest things was how do we move all of our brands? It's all interlinked with the same team. Like we're all doing things from Kenya to the States. We all work. Um, my stateside team works remote, completely remote. Um, and then our Kenya team, our headquarters are here. So it's like, how do we bring that all into one umbrella? Because what we really wanted to tell in the message of this year was that we as a money collective, our mission is to create dignified work. And our mission is to see the generational cycle of poverty end. And if we're doing that, we're doing that in all of these different brands by creating these products or services that provide jobs. And so that, if that's, what's driving us, then we, that's how like we're all one, you know, we mm -hmm. all, now they all are very different brands. And if you go look at all of them, they all very much look different. But if you start to read through the website and read through, you know, social, you'll, you'll be able to see the interlinks of our voice that we are the same. And so that's when we became a holding company. So we kind of shut down all of our entities and became these sub brands under um, Amani Collective as a whole. And so you'll see these brands say like Amani Kids by Amani Collective or Sukwa by Amani Collective. So they now like live in a family. Um, but when we, if you would have gone to amanicollective.com in the beginning of this year, you would have landed on our shop Amani Kids page. Mm, and what I found okay. is that that was confusing. That was confusing for donors on the impact side. That was confusing for other people who know us in Kenya. Because if you walk in our workshop, you see all of these things and you're like, wait, this is just your kid's brand. How do I get access of all of these other things? And so we really needed to change our messaging and our branding specifically this year to make sure everybody knew like we're, we're one, but we have a lot of different voices and kind of multiple brands underneath. And it's be, been able to gain a lot of clarity because we are a money collective on the nonprofit side. That's still our name. And we are a money collective in our business. So people are like, what's the difference, you know? And yeah, so really yeah. being able to educate our consumers as well, like this is where your purchase goes to, this is where your donation goes to. These are all the things we get to do because at the end of the day, we support over a hundred artisans here in Kenya. And like, we love what we do. And um, we just want to make sure that it makes sense to everybody else. And they understand all that we do so that they can be involved. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that you broke it down like that. Cause I was wondering, um, because obviously I went through and saw all the different brands. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I I could see exactly what you just articulated and that like there's different products, different services, but they're all very, in, at least from an onlooker's point of view, very connected and like just the, yeah, the way the brands are presented, like the colors you're using, the, um, the storyline that you're telling throughout like different sites and all that. Um, but I was on the, I was like, oh, this is so cool because I... I, I know a little bit, little bit about nonprofits um, was part of one that basically acts as a um, like kind of like an HR recruiting firm for yeah, tech yeah. places here in Indianapolis. And so was part of that program for two years. Um, and so I got to see like the nonprofit side of things, how they work, get to chat with a lot of people in the nonprofit space and had some friends that um, worked at some nonprofits as well. But obviously working myself as a at a for-profit business and so 
it was so interesting to kind of see the differences of the two that all fall under Imani Collective. Um, right. And see like, okay, now it makes, I can see like the different, um, the different companies that fall under mm-hmm. Imani Collective, but can see like, okay, this is obviously for profit business list, like Imani kids. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the thing, like you can be with a social saying and using that terminology of social enterprise or saying I'm a social entrepreneur. Like you're not just a business, like in the sense of like, okay, I'm yeah. I'm just product-based business. Like you're a product-based business with a very underlying mission that like, and then you're going to be, you're going to be asking the harder questions. You're going to be pushing into that dialogue a little bit more. You're going to be making decisions differently than someone who is trying to streamline to profit because you're not just looking at profit. You're looking across the board of your people, your partnerships you have, your supply chain are we using for us. We're also looking at our material, regenerative materials. Um, how are we using our offcuts to then upcycle into a new product? We're asking all of these questions and statistically, like it takes three to five years to become a profitable business in any business. And when you're starting a social enterprise, it takes eight to 12 years. And I always tell people like, that's, it's the long game. So like, if you're really wanting to be in a social impact business, like just know it's going to take, it's going to take, <laughs> have that reality. Time. Yeah. <laughs> have the reality that because we statistically fit that. I mean, we hit profitability. It's our 10th year and, um, we hit profitability around this, this year. Now I will say on that though, like we did not become a business until like, we did not start acting like a business until 2017. And so we're still in the stages of like, I feel like, I mean, we have a lot of accomplishments and at the same time, I'm like, Oh, we're so baby in the sense of like, there's, (laughs) you know, I still feel toddler, um, Mm -hmm. in a sense, but there, yeah, there's a lot that we're looking at as a social enterprise. And, and at the same time, I think, you know, nonprofit and for-profit are just tax statuses. So if there are people listening here and they do have a nonprofit, like you should be running your nonprofit. What I learned when I finally put on that CEO hat and I saw the whole picture of what we were trying to do and we moved into this high, this very unique hybrid model. And so I was like, man, we need to be running our nonprofit just as we do our for-profit because you should always have a strategy around that. And you should always be thinking of that. I mean, as well. So it's, it's the same, um, in a sense of like, we shouldn't, you know, just be most, I feel like nonprofit leaders are in crisis management and all these things. And we, we really need to have strategy and be proactive so that we can see impact there. But I will always ask people, um, how's your impact going to be sustainable without you a part of it? And that was the really, you know, the main reason why we moved into, uh, Amani shop Amani kids as first grew that brand and then grew multiple, little brands around it and then became Imani Collective as a whole um, fold to like hold these um, companies together. I love that you said that because I, um, that same program, it's called the Or Fellowship here in India, if anyone wants to look it up, but our um, executive director had said the same thing where he had said it should run as a for-profit, like still have the same strategy. It's not all that different um, mm-hmm. in which a world that I hadn't worked at a nonprofit, I would probably think they're astronomically different um yeah well most people do think and what's sad is that we don't as a nonprofit, you don't set the right budgets to have the right people and so people are getting underpaid resources mm -hmm. are not being utilized overhead is a is a scary word to talk about because people don't want to spend money on overhead they just want to spend money on programmatic activities but the reality is you need overhead to run the programs and it's just like a weird it's 
if if you're listening to this and you've never been a nonprofit, you're probably like, what are they talking about? You, yeah, of course like, you okay. money, right? Because the for-profit <laughs> yeah. world is just like, duh. But like, mm-hmm. I don't know what happens. You cross over and it becomes evil to talk about money and overhead and these things. And it's like, we need the right people to do really good work, you know? And so it's, it's a really interesting, I don't know why we, why we get cringy about that on that side, but it's really important to talk about profit and talk about money and talk about that in the impact side. But at the end of the day, I love our model and what we have, um, because if our nonprofit ever did go away, like we are building a company that, um, by 2030 and onward, we'll be able to donate back into all of our programs that if we didn't have $1 raised, it would be okay because our business is profitable enough to support the holistic programs that we have. And that is the sustainable and circular model I've always wanted to create. But again, it's the long game. And so we're getting there. We're trucking. Yep. <laughs> we'll yeah, you're trucking along. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's the legacy I hope to leave there is like, it can happen. We just have to be patient with the process, but you can do really good stuff in your business. And even if you don't have ours is a very in-depth business, right? I'm like, I'm on the ground and with artisans, like whatnot, but it's not even like that. You can, in your business, you can have so many give back things, or you can partner with nonprofits that are already doing really good stuff, you know? Um, so I just, I just challenge business owners to use their profit for good and to find things that they're passionate about and align themselves to that. Because Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. I love it. And you're obviously very knowledgeable about the differences and where for-profit and nonprofit can come together and um, help each other out in like accelerating both of businesses. So sure. I wanted to also ask like, where, where are you going to learn all of this, right? Like if someone's listening, where would you, and wants to learn more um, beyond this episode, where would you direct them to? Like our, our CEO here at Malomo has been posing this question to us as a company of like, where are you going to look at, where are you going to get inspired in the industry? Um, who is kind of, who, who else in the space would you like give a shout out to for being very knowledgeable? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so my, you my have doctorate anyone. is in leadership. <laughs> <laughs> well, my doctorate's in leadership development, but my research is focused on social enterprises and the resource gaps that social entrepreneurs face. So it's something I'm extremely passionate about. Um, I built the school of ethical impact. And so we have tons of course stuff there. Um, and then of course I do coaching, but not to give a shout out to me, there's another organization that, um, I absolutely love that has amazing resources and it's called acumen and they have a thing called acumen Academy. So Jacqueline Novogratz is like the queen bee, queen bee. She's now married to the guy founder of Ted talk. So that's like a power. Oh, wow. Yeah. For sure. Uh, but Jacqueline Nowergat started one of the first women uh, micro enterprises or uh, micro um, micro loans uh, in Rwanda and really passionate about it in her early 20s. She wrote The Blue Sweater. She wrote um, uh, Manifesto. Is it? Oh, my gosh. I can't. Pers- Ooh, it's a it's a purple book. I can see it in my head. But It'll come sweater, to you. Look up, yeah. Look up Jacqueline. I, it will come to me when it when it comes. I will share it. But Jacqueline Ogratz, founder of Acumen Academy, tons of free resources. So I would encourage that. And then if you're ever just wanting someone like one-on-one, if you're looking at building something or you need strategy, like I do one-on-one coaching as well as do group coaching as well in that to, to truly understand social impact, but also understand um, other people doing it. Cause everyone has different models. Like we like to share our model and we like to be a brand that's edu- like an educator like education. I I say we're an open book and I want us to be an educative brand, but our model is not a good model for everybody. So there are other people doing really cool stuff. So one of my 
uh, loves and joys is connection. I don't believe we live in a small world. We actually just live in a big world. That's a connected world. And so all of us are super connect, you know, we're one degree away from a connection that we need. And, um, and it all we need to do is go out and ask for that. And so I love to connect people to the right, to the right people. So if you just need a connection or referral, like reach out to me on Instagram or email me. And I love connecting people. It's like, it's so fun to see people um, spark goodness in one another. Uh, but again, Acumen has a lot of great stuff. Um, and a lot of what I have built Amani Collective on is knowledge that I've learned out of that academy and being associated um, to what they offer. And so she has, um, yeah, really cool manifestos and things that um, she's put out. And of course, she's been on a million TED Talks because, you know, She's, she's married to the man, but I'm sure it was before they were married. I don't know. I don't know their love story, so I'm not going to talk for her, but those are, that's maybe I'll have her on and then I'll, I'll ask her all about it. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes, exactly. I love that you mentioned too, like connections and the power in that. Cause look at us, like Mackenzie shout her out from dead wallets, which she's been on this podcast, um, but Mackenzie Bauer and I'm the same way in that, um, yeah, wanting to connect people, especially through this podcast. It's been so amazing. Like I know, um, just connecting from you and happy to connect you with anyone else, obviously, but the power in, especially this industry, um, of like e-commerce and specifically Shopify, super, super willing to learn from other people to, um, to connect with other people and like give praise where it's due type thing. I, Mm -hmm. I mentioned this before we started recording, but being from the East coast and then coming to the Midwest, seeing the like cultural differences of just how people interact. Um, and then also seeing that in this industry where, you know, most of the times you reach out to someone and say like, Hey, would love to be connected with awesome people, you know, or, um, saw that you have this mutual connection. I've been looking to try and, you know, reach out to them. Would you mind assisting a connection? Um, I'm fi- I've found more often than not, people are more than happy to do so. Um, and it, and it creates a lot of fun because it's like your friends becoming friends, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we just are afraid, like we think that's invasive or maybe we assume, I'm not sure, but I mean, the worst case scenario is you don't get an email answered or you just get a no. Like, I think, um, once you get a couple of no's, like you're pretty strong, you can keep pushing through and <laughs> keep asking. Exactly. So, yeah. Trust me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gotten a lot of no's. And then when you get to those yeses, it feels really good. So. Yes. I love it. Okay. So I want to, I feel like we could keep chatting about this for the entire episode. If not, I know I was so like, I longer. feel like we went on a little tangent, but we, it's okay. I mean, we're here. exactly. <laughs> I think the most fun part about having this podcast, um, is being able to go on tangents and that like every, yeah. every guest is different, right. has your own, you have your own expertise that we can learn from. So I even put it in the intro of like, we love going on tangents. So it's part of the norm here. Um, but I do, I will bring us back to some more like (laughs) hardcore strategy plays for, um, our entrepreneurial listeners to (laughs) take away. I have strategy now. I do have strategy guys. I I can, I can talk to strategy now. I'm not so naive. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Um, so I think it's easiest to focus on Amani kids probably. Would you say the same? Okay. So let's dive in. Um, can you tell us about now that we have the background of like, Amani Collective and then transitioning to Amani Kids. Um, tell us about like the branding and the marketing side of the business. Like, how are you trying to, like, what messages are you trying to 
um, convey to parents across different cultures, across different um, like ICPs, across different um, stages of life? What are you trying to share through Amani kids to hopefully, you know, gain a consumer's trust? Yeah. So how Amani Kids got developed was when we first started, my first hire in the States was my friend Haley. We had gone to college together and we had actually had not talked to one another in a bit, but you know, it's one of those people you can always pick up with. And I knew she had started like a little design business and she had actually wanted to, she had worked in India before and wanted to kind of like work within social enterprise. So I knew there was like alignment in that and it was right in front of my face for a really long time. And I just like, it's when it made sense, it all clicked in my head. Right. And so I called her up and I said, I have no idea if I can pay you or when, but will you like help redesign everything for Amani Collective and like where we can go? And so I have to give like true, true, like shout outs to Haley of just like being like, okay, we can move into this space, but we need to niche in. We need to figure out what we want to be known for. And that's where it was really cool because we got to hone in and then now we're getting to spread our wings back out because we had to build a credible brand first that people could trust and know like, whoa, they know what they're doing. They can build a brand from ground zero all the way up, right? And then continue to do it over and over again. So really proud of us in that. And so from, uh, we had just gone to New York in August of 2016. It was an epic fail, financial fail. I was like, I'm done with this. I'm so tired. Like did not have any really like sound direction. And then called Haley up and was like, what if we go back to New York in February, but with a whole new look and what can we pull off? And so we decided that we wanted to be Imani kids and focus into kids spaces. Because when we looked across like handmade, artisan made, ethically made, there were a lot of people doing jewelry. And there were a lot of people doing apparel. Mm. There wasn't a lot of people doing home decor. And there for sure wasn't a lot of people doing home decor in kids' spaces. And for us, we both were young moms at the time. We both had, she had a one and a half year old. I had a four month old and we were continuing to have babies. I think by the, by the five-year mark of Amani Kids, we had like 14 kids between all of our leaders or I don't know. Oh, we had a lot so of so yeah. it was just like, we were young, you know, young moms building a brand. And one thing that Haley is a designer Um, She was just like, you know, when you go out and you get toys, it's just all of this like clunky, bright stuff, primary colors. Like I want something that's going to look good in my space. That's going to be aesthetically pleasing. And that still is teaching my kids something is really fun for my kid, but also looks good if it's just laying out on the floor in my living room. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. like, looks like it matches the space. So that's where the, that's where the vision came from. And then we also had to come internally to Kenya because one of our things that we focus on um, as a social impact brand is to not import anything, like any of our materials. So everything that comes to you is supplied in Kenya only. Um, We don't import from other countries. We want to support local supply chain. And so that can be difficult because you only have a certain bubble of creativity that you can win. But we knew that we wanted to stand true to that. And we knew we wanted to locally source. So we knew at in the beginning, we could get canvas and we could screen print. And that's yep. literally how it developed from there. Cause we were like, we have a sewing team. This is a consistent fabric and we're going to go find a, like an amazing screen printer. And we did, we, we like stole him from a print place and he's our lead of our screen printing department today. He's amazing. So that's kind of how it started. So it's just wanting to create really beautiful spaces for, for the modern mom. And at the same time, we wanted our brand to represent something that you're at no matter what age could learn 
um, we could bridge that gap, right? We could bridge that conversation that your money can do good. We could bridge that conversation of like your thing that you're playing with is like something that was made by this woman. And so every product is handmade. Um, you and your kid could send thank you notes to the, you know, to the mom. Like we just wanted them to understand that story as well. So I think that goes back to wanting to be an educative brand, wanting to change consumer trends. And so that's where we started um, as a brand. We It was really hard for me um, when we jumped into social because Amani Collective was kind of my personal social page of like mm-hmm. my money and my testimony. And the first thing that Haley said is we have to delete everything. And I was like, Whoa. what? We have to like the big choice of history of yeah because it's like blank right Mm -hmm. but it was exact I mean she knew exactly what we needed to do you needed to start from the ground up and I was really proud of us because in the first three years we grew from a little under I think eight hundred followers to over twenty thousand organically and so it really showed that connection that we knew like we could build a very true brand and we could do that. now, organically, I mean, it took time, right, to, to get to that. And then um, we've grown in different ways now. But to, to just show, to really show our true colors and our story and to build it for the mom that wanted to bridge that gap for their um, for their kid. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's such a good synopsis. Thank you. <laughs> um, I love that you also brought up social in that because I think branding, um, like brand marketing, it's very difficult to tie down mm-hmm um like quantifiable numbers a lot of the time so it's for sure one of those things where you're like okay is it really working but then you see that organic growth that you mentioned and you're like okay it is resonating right like we have something right. here we just have to dial in and figure out all the stuff that on the strategy side that you know any business um any founder has to go through so I wanted to one of the things that I was super excited to chat to you about um or chat with you about was like the conversation around ICP, around social, around how you're connecting with your customers, because obviously I would, I would assume that your ICP is new parents, right? Um, or maybe not even new mm-hmm. parents, but parents who have a new child. And how is the dynamic of you're trying to market to parents, right? Um, and social media where if parents are like, do you find a lot of the parents you're marketing to are on social media? Is that the right place that you are finding, you know, organic growth, which from the numbers, it looks, it seems like you are. Um, What was that? Like, how was the discovery process of finding out where to get in touch with your ICP? Yeah, I think to be honest, that's currently changing. So social was a space that really launched us into where we are now. Um, We still see social as really important, especially like with my personal brand that sits under Imani Collective. So Jenny Nuccio and School of Ethical Impact, like um, I think I continue to see a lot of organic growth in that side because uh, we have a very strong or I have a very strong voice in my values and what I represent. And I think that's so true to a brand. It's like if you're just selling the product, your growth is going to be a lot slower. If you're selling a community and a voice and a values like and like that's a different conversation. And I think I've been really proud of us of like we're not. Yeah, I love our product and it's cute and it's affirming and we've moved into more interactive play, which is also something we want that we're launching a lot into 2024 more of where 
it's more for it's geared to more smaller kids than our affirmation banners. But it's just this beautiful play that um, can evoke creativity. And so we've always wanted to be a space that's more communal and like the girl next door type feel and voice. And so I think as we've moved into that um, and really made social social and conversational, that's what's helped our organic growth. Now, um, I think if you're using social to just sell, you're going to you're going to hit a blockage somewhere. And we saw like we saw a like a growth stunt, like like we didn't grow as quickly. But I think as you get in numbers, that tends to happen. Right. Um, and it takes a little bit more time. Um but I would say you need that you need to be core to who you are, your internal compass, your self-assurance of what does your company stand for? And you need to have those values interwoven and it not to just be product, right? If we're just constant products, it's it's just noise that people are gonna scroll through. So how are we continuing to be part of that dialogue? I think as we move into 2024, something that our team is looking at is is reducing ad spend, you know, so ad, ad spend is an important part of what we do. And that's, you know, as we look across the board, I think ad spend is killing. Now this is not on statistics. This is complete personal <laughs> opinion. So take it as it is, uh-huh. but I think it's killing small brands because we think, oh, we're going to throw this amount of money, even if it's a couple thousand dollars. And I just don't think it's moving the needle anymore. You know, Meta has a, as has a hold on that. And maybe if you can drop half a million, that's going to, that's going to change. But, um, again, complete, complete opinion. Uh, but we're just seeing, it's just not, it's just not the same in our stats as, um, in our turnover and our conversion as it used to be. So something that we've moved into is more of our PR and our, um, article kind of strategy of how are we getting more educative articles out there when we're talking about gifting with meaning, when we're talking about teaching our kids and partnering with like, um, parent magazines or things like that. Um, and so we are focusing our efforts, um, more on a public relations side of, again, not just being a product, but being an educator in the space. And so, um, hit me up in a year and I'll let you know (laughs) how that goes. Um, but that's what we've been pushing into as we move into the end of the year. And I feel really good about it because we've, as a thought leader myself, I've always wanted our brands to represent thought leadership too. And so, I feel really good about um, those conversations that we get to be a part of versus just a a metric on an ad spend. Um, And so they can be both and, but I think we'll be maneuvering that a little different. And on a social side, we'll be stepping into more of like our brand ambassadors and our um, uh, program. We used to run a really cool brand ambassador program in 2019 and 2020. And we kind of took a break on that. And we really have seen the difference um, because the reality is people buy from people who they have trust with and they have rapport with. And so we want to get back to the to the ground level of that, of who people trust and who aligns with our values. And so, um, yeah, so we're looking for more. We're going to open that up soon for applications. And and I think that's going to probably be um, change our statistics too. So hit me up in a year and I can tell you. <laughs> I love it. My case study works, but yes, I actually, it's one of the things that when you're talking about like ad spend, which I'm glad that you broke that into this conversation because that's exactly where I want to go. Um, Because I do think it's something that we have to pay attention to of Mm -hmm. the, um, I think the stat is in 2013, it was like $9 to acquire a new customer. And in 2022, it was $29 to acquire a new customer. So that's very believable. Yeah. Yeah. Like crazy, just crazy difference. Right. Um, in nine, 
nine years. It might have been 2023, so maybe 10 years. Mm -hmm. But anyways, the message of ad spend um, might not be as efficient as it once was, um, I think is ringing true. I hear it a lot on this podcast and other podcasts as well. Um, And just talking to the brands that Lomo serves. Um, And so I think also I think people are maybe growing tired of ads, like consumers are growing tired of ads, right? Like you, the ambassador, the influencer space now, like our celebrities are influencers, right? Like it isn't just actresses and actresses um, or like sports, right? It isn't just people in the entertainment business, but it's like everyday people who are making content and then becoming influencers. Um, So I think it's always fascinating to um, see like brand ambassador programs or to see um, maybe ads that aren't you know your typical ads that you would run like on television back in the day um so i i with that brand ambassador program do you have any inkling of like the direction of what was successful what wasn't um like any way i guess someone could tailor a brand ambassador program to like their needs um because i know you said yeah. you had it in like 2019 2020 and then take a break took mm-hmm. a break but then are coming back to it yeah like, we what might learning? have had it in 2021 as well but i mean reach out to us and we're again like i said we are an open book brand but i think you know for us uh for one we were very like at first it was like let's see who signs up for this right like is right. anyone interested yeah. <laughs> and then of course it became an application process and we w- we would pick about 10 at a time because we wanted to make sure we didn't have like 50 and mm-hmm. then we couldn't make sure that their um experience with us one it takes a budget to have a brand ambassador program right so it's like we can't give free product to all these people as well but we also wanted to make sure that the people that were part of our ambassador program they literally felt like gems and part of our family and so with that like our program, they're not getting paid. Like, so it's not like an influence. It's not like I'm paying like an influencer to put on stories. A brand ambassador program is a trade for product for pictures. So if you look at a lot of our lifestyle photos in the years from 2019, you know, in that span, we have a lot of variety that match our look, but complete variety of different settings. And that's because it's coming from our ambassadors um, who are sending that out. So they're getting product anywhere between, you know, five to eight products that is free. They get to keep as long as, you know, they're submitting um, so many, I think, I forgot how many stories or static shots or whatever like that. So it was a pretty clear trade. Um, We, you know, I've had some people that were, have talked about running brand ambassador programs and like, wow, I like sent free product and then got duped basically and didn't get any, Mm. you know, uh, photos and stuff. I think that's maybe the true tell of like your, um, pre, like your pre-stage of like assessing people out because like, we never really struggled with that or having to pull from people. Like we had pretty loyal ambassadors, but um, it does take time. Like we, as we're looking into next year, we're like, we're going to need one person literally dedicated to like ambassador. And we're also looking into like, what, what budget can we put around influencer as well? Because that is important, I think. And just again, the trust and report, but one person has to, you know, assess all of those applications, make sure we're aligning correctly, make sure they're being loved, seen and heard, you know, in part of the family. And so I think if you can really care for your ambassadors, it's going to be a successful trade, but you need to have, you know, 
um, the people that can do that and be able to follow up and make sure they get their things and, you know, all of that. And we really like to run a pretty balanced ship at Omani Collective, especially as we moved into this year and make sure not everyone's wearing so many different hats. So um, as a small, you know, when you start as a small business, you can easily you know, move into burnout. And it's like, how can you add a program, but it doesn't burn you out in the process. So thinking through your health as well is important for me to like coach to people. I'm like, can you handle it at this time? It is a great thing to add, but can you handle it? And can you do it well with quality? Because trust me, if you don't start a quality ambassador program, you're not going to get quality, like ambassadors or partners. And um, that is going to go through the eco, like the, the sphere of other people, like talking about maybe what your program looks like. So just making sure you can handle all those responsibilities. But yeah, I think just being true and honest and having a good team, um, really will set people up for success in that program. Yeah. I love that. I love that call out. And I think it's very, it, like you said at the top of the call, or maybe it was in the minute in the middle, but entrepreneurs love shiny things. And so it can be really easy to, try want to try everything um but having the wherewithal to step back and say like can we do it well right now um like maybe this is something in half a half a year or a year we can do it better than like hold off and then see what the program can do for you um i think it's great advice that anyone who's looking to start or roll out a similar program um to have the the pause in should we pursue this right now or not? Um, I want to keep asking you more strategy questions, but we are coming up at time. Um, so one of the things that I've started doing on this podcast more recently has been asking, like, is there anything that you're super excited to, um, that's going to roll out in the new year? This episode will be airing mid January, 2024, which is kind of crazy to say, but, um, is there anything that, you know, Amani kids or Amani collective, that you would love to advertise or share or, um, you know, get our audience excited for? If not, it's totally okay. Oh man, there's, I mean, Amani Kids is always rolling out great things. So by the time this comes out, like you got Valentine's coming out Mm -hmm. and oh man, I mean, I've already seen all of that in our workshop. So I'm really excited. So be checking out all the collections that come out with Amani Kids because Paloma is our lead designer in our team and she is one heck of a designer and it's been with us for, for a while. And so just, yeah, it's good stuff. So a little be Easter looking egg. for that. Yes. Yes. Be looking for that. And then we always, something that is a little bit, it's not e-commerce totally, but we also, you know, we run in the wholesale and customization world. So if you are someone that's wanting to step into like the ethical space or you have uh, your brand and you want to do corporate gifting or private labeling or anything, we are an ethical manufacturing site as well, Amani Collective here in Kenya. So we love to partner with brands. Um, I'd love to help them out on that where um, we can, you know, you can share our ethical impact story and sustainability practices and would love to have that conversation. But corporate gifting is some of our favorite things to do. So we're doing more of that in 2024 or this year and doing more B2B as well. And so, yeah, we we have a lot of things going on, but go check out for sure Imani Kids because there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that's already launched in January and into quarter one and two. So I love it. I love it. That's perfect. Um. I'm I'm not I'm now hyped. This also is just for fun for me when I get to release these episodes and listen back and I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to check out um Amani Kids and all yeah. the things that um you all will be launching. But I will wrap this up for the sake of time. So Jenny, thank you so much for joining. It's been a pleasure getting to learn just about social entrepreneurship um 
and also the de development of the many brands that <laughs> fall under Amani Collective. So thank you for making the time. I'm so happy. Shout out again to Mackenzie for making the connection. Um, and I can't wait to continue to learn more. Yeah. Thank you so much for the time.